You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1963 film, The Great Escape. So, in case if you've never heard or seen this movie, it tells the uh, true story of a Allied prisoner escape attempt from uh, Stalag Luft III. Germany tech took place March 24th, 1944. This was a mass effort, and it was in... Well, as we'll discuss further, it wasn't just British and American POWs. There were Norwegians, there were Canadians. Canadians were the primary um, people behind this. And so the story, the movie is telling the story of them, and particularly um, Captain Bartlett. He's sort of the leader of the escape, and it's a mass escape attempt. They dig tunnels, three different tunnels. Tom, Dick, and Harry pull it off. They pull off the escape, but it shows sort of the aftermath. Most of them get caught. Only three successfully escape. But of the so 76, and of 76, 50 were exe- captured and executed by the Germans. Mm-hmm. This was ordered by Adolf Hitler. So yeah, that's pretty much the movie. It's you, Yeah. And it's, a, you know, it's... Just every like I could, I could I hum the tune. You know what I? You, oh, yeah. you know the movie. It's just one of those one, classics. One of the greatest uh, soundtracks of, of all time in film. It is a great song. It's a great. It's a great film. I, mm-hmm. I know they uh, play somewhat. I should put it this way: they play somewhat fast and loose with the cast of characters, but not with the as it were the facts of the escape. They get almost every detail right. But as you say, uh, most of the people involved were certainly not Americans. And as far as I recall, there was only one American involved in the uh, escape attempt. Uh, and most of them were uh, allied for, allied airmen. Yes, this from, in, the, in the POW camp was run by the Luftwaffe. Yeah, and this is the way the Germans did things. You would have POW camps for the army, and just about exclusively there would be uh, uh, allied army uh, uh uh, personnel held there, and in this case, the Luftwaffe, the equivalent of the Allied Air Forces, ran this camp, and that's kind of what I l- actually like about this film and that that arrangement. It might not have been the wisest thing to do for the for for the for the for the uh, Germans to segregate their POW camps this way because it's kind of a psychological type that um, uh, airmen. Uh, pilots, people in the Air Force, they tend to be very pertinacious, very creative, very inventive, and not willing to accept a status quo. It, it just seems to be a psychological type. And the reason I'm saying this is because, as you know, we've, we've been having an ongoing project with uh, interviews with a lot of the men, a good set of the men, 18 of them that were kept at the Hualo prison and other prisons in uh, Hanoi during during the Vietnam War. And guess what? They're all airmen, too, and they all have this exact same psychological trait. Uh, very pertinacious and very, very inventive. 
And you, you read enough of these stories of not only those guys, but guys in World War II, uh, not only in European camps, but over in the Pacific. And they were able to craft all kinds of things with materials they would somehow or another pilfer from uh, civilians or friendly uh, uh, Japanese or Germans. And that's another interesting thing, I think, too, about this case. In the real-life case, uh, a lot of the materials, including passports and other documentation that they would use after they escaped, was actually provided by guards uh, that worked at these camps that were sympathetic to them. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the movie, it's much more of a clandestine thing. And, and there's this character, this <laughs> poor, this guard, this one German guard who lets himself kind of get trapped into providing these things. And, you know, his, his wallet's lifted from him when he, he doesn't realize it. Apparently, uh, that's not quite how things happen. They, they had sympathetic people that would find ways to get them these documents so that they that that they they could then turn around and uh, forge very realistic copies. And that's shown in the film, and that's entirely accurate. It's so interesting. We we meet the commandant of the camp, and his the idea is he's, he, you know, he introduces all the other all the prisoners' records. They've done multiple escape attempts. They said, you know, some of the guys try to jump off the truck on their way here. They just have to escape. But his idea of this camp is... We're going to put all the rotten eggs in one basket. Yeah, you kind of wonder the the logic of that. If you're yeah. putting all the you know the you know restless you know ca- you know escape happy prisoners, what are they going to do? Yeah. They're going to try to escape, <laughs> even do. if they don't. Even if they don't succeed, they're going to keep doing it. You're not. No matter what you do, you're not going to really get them to stop. Yeah, you want to disperse all of these crazy airmen into different POW camps and yeah. not put them all together. Um, but speaking of the commandant, I mean, I love the scene when he is first introduced to, to Bartlett, or Bartlett's first introduced to him. The two people that bring him into the camp, it's one Gestapo agent, another SS man. And it's it's not real obvious, but you can tell that Bartlett has been beat, tortured, abused in some way before he's arrived at this camp. And you see the mutual respect between Von Luger, the camp commandant, and Bartlett. And uh, you can tell he doesn't particularly approve of or like what the SS and Gestapo do. And and, and he, he almost gives Bartlett a kind of a wink and a nod at, at one point when, when the... Uh, SS and, and Gestapo guys threaten him and say, you know, we're going to kill you if we catch you again. And uh, uh, he kind of reinforces, you know, you're, you're in a very difficult place to escape. And I, I, I don't want you to do that and so forth. But I don't think he really means it. He and knows it's just, he knows no matter what it's he's going to say. It's, just, it's pro forma. Yeah. It's just pro forma. But he, he also recognizes again that they have a professional duty at least that's how they describe it in the movie that bartlett and and the other 
POWs. It's not just a matter of them being one, a psychological type. Um, they, they all feel they have a professional duty to try to escape. Now, having looked things up, I don't think there was specifically anything in, in the mm. UK. They mentioned in the RAF, that's their duty, but I yeah. think it's shown that there's no specific There is guidance. no specific requirement. It's a little bit like the United States Code of Conduct these days. Technically, that thing does not have the force of law, but it is, it is still something that um, um, uh, United States soldiers, uh, airmen, etc., uh, do live by and feel they have a duty to live by. And and something like that was also the case with Bartlett and these men. And Von, like I said, Von Luger recognizes this. He respects it and he fully expects that he will be, uh, as it were, grappling with these guys, competing with these guys, trying to catch them before they escape. And uh, uh, the movie does a great job, I think, of showing that respect and just showing the the difficult challenge he had. I mean, these guys are very, very inventive and creative, um, and they they, they they do a good job of setting that up. And what's interesting about this movie, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it, was because the end game, I think, for doing this isn't just to to pull off a successful escape and get back to Allied lines. That's obviously one of the main things, of course, but they realize that since they've been recaptured so many times that the odds of them pulling off a perfectly successful escape this deep in the heart of Germany is not in their favor. But they still say if they don't get back and they get recaptured, that doesn't mean what they're doing was a failure. Their main thing is get so many people out, cause as much of a trouble with the Germans searching for them and hunting them down, they're doing more of this than actually spending time on the front lines. Yes. And that when this happened, this was in March of 1944, that succeeded because they had to send so many people. Like Hitler himself was briefed on this, and he was embarrassed, he was outraged, so it did cause a great fuss, even though only three out of the 75 escaped. Yeah, and and, and they do a good job of, of showing this as well. Um, the... the 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 men in that camp, and I would say that the men in a lot of POW camps. Again, I'm thinking of the Vietnam example. They saw themselves um, as not being removed from the fight at all, despite the fact that they are technically not combatants anymore. They don't carry arms. They're they're not involved in any kind of battles, uh, typical battles. But still, they consider themselves, I think, to be in the war. And they uh, make a good point in the film of saying, "Look, uh, like you said." Uh, we're not we're not naive about prospects of success on the, on the escape, but we what we do realize, and what actually was in fact the case, maybe it's a bit exaggerated, but it was still the case. They realize, you know, if we we conduct a mass escape, and they were shooting for 200, 250 guys, uh, if we cut, conduct a, a mass escape and are successful in getting the guys out of that camp and dispersed uh, throughout Europe, um, that's going to tie up some forces looking for us and even if we're not entirely successful doing that if we put all of our effort into attempting to do so get caught once in a while doing so we know full well what that ends up doing is tying up forces that would otherwise be be engaged in more as it were conventional combat out there on battlefields so it makes it harder for the Germans to win the war. That, I think, is also in very much in that spirit, that RAF 
tradition, the spirit of that tradition, and certainly in the spirit of the code of conduct. And they do a very good job, I think, of portraying that. And it's it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting contrast because sometimes you you, you look in the philosophical literature about uh, the ethical status of POWs, and and the the idea is that there, there's some kind of a benevolent incarceration role that they should accept, and that it's unfair of their home governments or their home uh, military. Um, uh, institutions to expect them to attempt escape or attempt things that put them in a position of uh, uh, great vulnerability and danger. Uh, but I think to uh, to a man, if you ask the, the, these guys in, in this camp and several other PLW camps, um, uh, it, certainly in Europe, um, and again, in the case of Vietnam, it, it really comes to mind as well. They would say that is, that is a completely wrong way of conceptualizing our status. Uh, now, I would say in the case of the Vietnam War, it's, even, it, it's, it's wrong to, to a stronger extent because of the efforts that the North Vietnamese made toward using these men as propaganda now, the Germans didn't do that so much. They did uh, uh, attempt in some cases to make use of uh, uh, POWs for labor that was directly related to the war effort. That's against the Geneva Conventions. Um, the Japanese did that to a great extent in the, in the Pacific. So, uh, the, the, plus the Germans, even when they weren't doing that, did not uh, obey all of the strictures of the Geneva Conventions. There was a lot of things they didn't do. They sometimes didn't allow the Red Cross to uh, visit uh, camps, for instance. Um, one obvious thing from this film, executing people for attempted escapes, that's against the Geneva Conventions. So they were not perfect. And granted that they were not perfect as, uh, as it were, jailers, so to speak, then uh, there is no reciprocal... Uh, obligation on the part of the prisoners to take on that role of just taking on a, a benevolent confinement. Um, and um, again, that's shown very clearly in the film. Yeah, well, we, I guess we should take this time to mention that for those who don't know, The Great Escape itself was based on a book by Paul Brickhill. Paul Brickhill was one of, was in this camp. He was a POW, British. And he actually was working on one of the tunnels. But as we see portrayed by Bron Charles Bronson, he was also, he had the, just the claustrophobia and it just got to him enough where he couldn't take it anymore. And yeah. the, he was told to sit out because he said if he cracked again while he was, they're going through the tunnel and trying to escape up, they, he would endanger other people's lives. Yeah. So he had to stay behind. But after the war ended, he felt compelled because at that time nobody really knew until he wrote the book and then he started writing the book and um, talking to other people who were still alive who were part of that escape attempt and so that's how it came to be and it's it's it, you admire him because he also um, wrote the book that would inspire the movie The Dam Busters as well so it's just this I letting people know what really went on even though nobody else at that time knew what was going on yeah and uh, I like I like his character, uh, or the, kind of the analog of his character in the film. I cannot remember the guy's name. The Forger, the so. character of Blythe. So I like uh, Brick Hill. Uh, the, the contrast between the true story of Brick Hill and the fictional character Blythe, who is also known as a Forger, 
um, they really do a good job of showing his centrality to the efforts. He's, after all, the guy that takes all those passes and so forth and creates very realistic replicas that people are unable to tell the difference between the two, right? But tragically for him, he starts to lose his eyesight and he eventually becomes totally blind. And then there is that moral dilemma, that ethical dilemma. What do we do with him? I'm sh- we, we're, we're sure he wants to leave. We're sure if we leave him behind, uh, he runs a risk of perhaps reprisals with the escape. Um, and even if we do take, it, take him, it's, it's dangerous for him as a blind man, even with a partner. Uh, the scrounger <laughs> um, it's it's blind for him so they, they 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 wrestle with that and they ultimately they decide to go ahead and take him and have him uh, uh, attempt the escape with a partner I, I like that yeah and what's interesting we talk about Paul Brickle one of the because I did have a chance to read the book and one of the things they don't quite go into about the movie which I can understand it's a movie that's long enough already it's almost three hours but he talks about the investigation post-war about all the officers responsible for the execution of the 50 prisoners because like it's with one of the things mentioned in the book is one of the first guys that are captured he hops on the uh truck with the guy then he's taken in they the gestapo mistake him for a spy and he starts getting interrogated and tortured and that's in the book but then as later on um after well, Hitler is informed of the escape, the escape attempt, and he wants anybody who's found to be executed. And Goering talked him down a little bit, saying, if we do that, then retaliation would execute German POWs. Yeah. So they talked him down to just do over half of them, which was 50 out of 75. Yeah. They talk about it, but in the book, they go into after the war, there is a hunt down, they get... They find out because it wasn't just all these fifty guys were rounded up as they show in the movie. Yes, they were taken out. They were taken out and executed at different times, different places. And so it goes into all the they hunt down all the SS officers they can find and bring them to justice at the end of the war. Yeah, uh, and in the, in the real case, you're exactly right. It was done one or two at a time, and in typical SS fashion with pistols, not machine guns. Although they did machine gun people down, but with this particular case of these fifty, they didn't. And again, that that shows up that contrast between the amoral and uh, monstrous character of obviously Hitler but also the organizations, the Gestapo and the SS, um, uh, built around terror and total disregard for human life, uh, as contrasted with the professional military personnel who predated the formation of the Nazi party in Germany, exemplified again by von Luger, who is an old old school uh, German uh, Luftwaffe uh, colonel. And, uh, probably served in the First World War. Probably did, along with uh, a lot of the characters in this film from the Allied side who also served in the First World War. In the real life, yeah. Yes, yes. So, again, there's going to be that context and that familiarity with each other from the previous war and that professional respect. And it's it's interesting, I think, to see the evolution of the way POWs were treated between the First World War and the Second World War and even earlier wars than the First World War, they were typically, not always, but typically treated much more uh, professionally and uh, 
it was much more of that kind of benevolent jailing that uh, I talked about earlier. So uh, sometimes they'd be put up in fairly nice uh, um, circumstances and fed quite well and given all kinds of uh, opportunity for culture and so forth. In fact, some of that actually went on in the real camp that this uh, this uh, movie is based upon. Yeah, and actually now that you bring that up, this one of the movies that I think inspired this was a famous French film from 1937 called The Grand Illusion, which was about POWs in World War One. But one of the main characters in that movie is a German commandant played by Eric von Stroheim. And he has a friend, co- constant friendly conversations with this British uh, POW. They're both very uh, part of the aristocracy, upper yeah. class. They're having wine. They're, they even, you know, sometimes they talk in German, but they sometimes break it and talk, discuss English. Yep. They're completely cordial and friendly because this is still at the time before Nazis, before, you know, yes. this was still kind of the old generation of Europe before, you know, Hitler and started taking power in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And it, what's funny is in, in those kinds of circumstances, uh, uh, the, the the professionals also realize, you know, I'm having wine with this guy. I'm conversing with this guy. We're, we're basically on friendly terms, but I know full well he's going to try and escape. And they would. Uh, again, they felt it was their duty to do so, to kind of conduct behind the enemy lines harassment. Uh, it's an, a- an analog to actual harassment, um, the military sense of harassment. Uh, but it was accepted. It was, uh, as it were, uh, uh, standard, as it were, rules of engagement for the uh, for the POWs uh, on all sides of wars at that time. And yeah, and because we talked about von Luger, he is also based on the actual. I forget the the, man, the man's actual name, but that is based on somebody real. And in the book, they talk about like we had respect for this guy. We know he was the enemy, but you know he wasn't. There's a clear difference between him and the SS and the Gestapo. Yeah, and he was also. Um, had to go on trial during this investigation of the after the war of the execution of the prisoners and he was exonerated people spoke on his behalf saying you know he this was he's not SS he's not Gestapo and they even did a check like he completely followed by the yeah. Geneva Convention it was taken out of his hands he had he had no power or opportunity to uh, reverse that decision and it was made obviously without any kind of input from him um, so that was a good call, I think. And what is interesting, because after the escape attempt, they um, he's walking out. He's you can the SS and Gestapo are right behind him, and some of the soldiers are saluting him. He says, "You don't salute him anymore." Yeah, so you can tell. And watching that before I knew sort of the backstory of what happened to him, I immediately assumed that they were going to execute him for you know causing an embarrassment. Yeah. But it didn't happen. But you know, you think about that when you're watching it. Yeah, he was he was relieved of his command. Because he chose to behave professionally and and within the bounds of the Geneva Conventions and and ethical behavior, and again in contrast to the way the Gestapo and the SS behaved. Yeah, and so as we're talking, we should mention that even though yes, uh, fifty of the POWs were executed. Many of the others were just captured and brought back to the camp. There were, as, the mention, as shown in the movie, there were three yep. that did manage to escape. And one of the things some people kind of criticize this movie for, I'm, I say it's a Hollywood movie. It's going to make people easier if they can root for the Americans and, <laughs> yeah. you know, the Brits. And you get to see, you know, you get, even though it's 
didn't happen. I, I was hoping it happened, but it didn't happen. You don't get to see some uh, a Steve McQueen type riding a <laughs> motorcycle and trying to jump the line into Switzerland. Dang it, I wanted that yeah. to happen. But um, there, um, it was mainly done by Canadians, and the three that did escape were Norwegian. Yep. They were um, Hers Bergsland, Jens Mueller, and Brom Vanderstock. And Brom Vanderstock, he went, I believe he was the one that went back into action after the uh, after um, escaping and uh, he was an ace ace pilot for the for Nor- the, Norway and um reading about it um Vanderstock was really interesting because he had to go through so many like chapters of different resistances just to get he he would like oh yeah he went he stayed in one house where there was a Brit and a Frenchman and he would have to wait and there was he was in Sweden and it was just constant going through these different channels and chapters that would have just drove me crazy because you want yeah. you're just gonna you're one of these days you're just gonna be like okay I'm just gonna I can't hide any longer you're gonna make a mad run for it oh or at least you're gonna get very paranoid because yeah it was it was like an underground I don't know root you think of the complex tangle of roots in a tree so it's kind of an underground complex tree uh, uh, collection of roots and he's got to find his very circuitous route back out of there and to freedom it's it's absolutely yeah. and what we we do have to talk about the um other two that do escape uh Pers Berglund and Jens Muller and they had it was I think just like in the movie they go on the basically ride a canoe through almost a huge river yeah. and they never really get caught it was almost yeah. pretty smooth sailing yeah. everybody was like man why didn't we think of that you know that i don't know what about you but i was watching those they're, they're cutting back and forth between all the different stories of the guys and, and and they're trying to make their way out of there and they every so every once in a while they cut back to these two guys just rowing that boat it was almost like the comic relief for me i don't know why i thought that but i just thought it's like it's nobody's so stopping these guys yeah. this is way too easy come on it was great yeah but you, you can't take down charlie brunson <laughs> yeah and one of the things i do kind of wish they would have included in the movie when reading it i thought this was interesting was um there was he kind of somewhat sort of escaped i guess but it was uh, johnny dodge yeah, and he was um, also at this time he was fifty, so he served in the First World War, and he was a relative of Winston Churchill. Knowing that he was captured, and he was in a prison for a while, but around the turn of the year nineteen forty-five, yeah, the Germans sent him to Britain. They because they knew at that time the war was close to an end, and they since they they knew that he was a relative of Churchill, yeah, and. They sent him to Churchill to negotiate terms of surrender. One of their things was they did not want unconditional surrender. Yeah. And eventually, and while they were doing that, he was actually taken in again by I believe, I believe by their SS or Gestapo because they thought the people that were arranging this were traitors to Germany. But they eventually got that cleared up. Yeah. And he was sent through to England and met with Churchill. And again, that's showing that contrast because the people that sent him to attempt that negotiation were, as it were, old-school military, old-school German military. And uh, they thought they could perhaps get an inroad and get this thing, get this war over with quicker. And then what happens when he's captured, again, it's by the, the, the two, as it were, immoral components of the German military machine, the SS and the Gestapo, and they come very near killing him. Now, what's interesting is before he is sent on that January mission um he is actually tortured 
by the Germans earlier in, in his amazing career. This guy bounced all over the place, both uh, before and during and after um, this episode. This guy's an amazing yeah. character. It, it reads unrealistic. You, you read, read, read his story and you're thinking, this is James Bond on steroids. It, it, and it doesn't seem realistic, but it, it happened. All right, so getting close to my questions, is there anything else we should uh, bring up before we start wrapping up? I, I The only thing I can say is just kind of the general, uh, as it were, uh, mood or timbre of the, uh, the film. Uh, part of the reason I like it is it kind of in contrast with some other films we've done on similar subjects is it's not overbearingly grim. It's got light moments. Uh, it still manages to show the interesting contrast and the ethical status between uh, the professionals, as it were, and the thugs. Um, and I, I like that balance. It, it, you don't come away from it kind of morally and emotionally exhausted, I don't think like we did with uh, uh, last week's uh, um, entry and some others. And I know that's kind of a, it's probably a, a, a common element of, Hollywood period, uh, film or just films in period uh, in general of that period, um, you don't see it so much anymore. And it, I know when I'm watching these films that are like this, uh, I kind of miss it. Uh, modern cinema is much more gritty and realistic. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, for each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.